Hello everyone, I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, queens. We are excited. We have Dr. Claire Marie Roberts. She is the co-program leader for the MS Sports and Exercise Psychology and Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Psychology. She combines her academic work with her role at the Premier League making, managing coaching and football manager development. Other examples of her role in high-performance sport involve working with national governed bodies of sport, professional sport teams, individual athletes, parents, coaches, and sports scientists. She's helped prepare a number of athletes and teams for international competitions, including the Olympic, Paralympic, and Commonwealth Games. Her role as the British Olympic Association psychologist at the London 2012 Olympics was, to date, her career highlight. I'd say so. (laughs) <laughs> um, her experiences of working with athletes reflect her research interests that include sport neuropsychology, hashtag nerd out, we yeah, love it, yeah, yeah. Um, specifically concussion and traumatic brain injury, career transition in elite sport, visual behavior and sport performance in women in sport. She specializes in working with elite adolescent athletes and their parents and is one of the UK's first sports psychology specialists trained to deliver eye movement desensitization reprocessing also known as EMDR therapy. Claire Marie is a non-executive board director of the UK Anti-Doping and founder of the Women in Sport Academic Network, which we'll be sure to put all these on your show notes so they can follow you, a member of the Women in Sport Research Action Group and a task-registered psychologist and STEM ambassador. So you can see why we want her. She's kind of badass. She is. I'm so (laughs) excited to talk to Claire Marie today. Thanks for being on. Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) So, Claire Marie, let's talk first about how actually sports psychology was a second career for you. Tell us why you decided to um, take kind of the the journey to sports psychology. So actually, sports psychology was always my career goal. So I was a swimmer in my uh, in my teens and I used to work with a sports psychologist uh, sort of towards what ended up being the, the sort of end of my swimming career. But my work with uh, a very early version of a sports psychologist really helped transform my um, athletic performance. And I'd, I'd, at the time, I'd kind of reached a bit of a plateau and my new coach come in and sort of brought all of these different and new sort of training methods and things like that and introduced those in, into, um, into my schedule. And um, actually, one of them, Becca, will uh, resonate with you. So he brought in some nutritional guidelines, for example, <laughs> which were like groundbreaking at the time. Mm. Uh, and things, you know, requirements to do land-based training and stuff, which as a swimmer, the, the sort of attitude was, why would you need to do any training out of the water? Um, and then with that came this um, this introduction of sports psychology. Um, lots of people didn't engage with because they were really sceptical of it. But I just thought, I've got nothing to lose. You know, I need to 
try and throw everything um, at improving my performance. And my work with a sports psychologist really transformed mm. uh, transformed my swimming. And uh, I was just absolutely fascinated with the the impact that it had and could have on performance. And it was a really new thing. It was it was unheard of and. And it was something that I was so interested in. So that that was my career goal. And then uh, it's a really long story, but um, I sort of sabotaged my own swimming career. I went skiing when I wasn't allowed to go skiing. I had an accident, uh. um, messed up my my knee, which as a breaststroker is is not particularly not particularly useful. Um, and my my place at uh, Loughborough was taken away from me, and um, I had to choose a, a different uh, academic path. I was going to go and study sports science to be able to to get into sports psychology um so i ended up doing civil and building engineering and uh that was the that was the path that i took for seven years before deciding that i needed to to go back to university and and study what i was destined to do all of mm-hmm. those years so i had a bit of a sort of convoluted route into sports psychology um but i, I don't think i'd change it actually i think um Having a background in construction and uh, and engineering was so interesting. It, it, it kind of I think it probably toughened me up a little bit working, <laughs> working in a very sort of male dominated mm-hmm. industry. There was there was no room for you couldn't have bad days. You had to be on top of your game every single day, um, and every day was a was a really interesting challenge. And all of those things, all of those skills that I learned from my first career have taken into my, my second career. And I think as, as a result, I'm probably a bit more resilient than I would have otherwise been. So, Which is probably why you're so compassionate to the athletes on, they still want to be persons and go have fun and ski, but also do their sports. So you can really resonate with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I think when you're working with athletes who are struggling with, you know, injury or, you know, any, any type of, um, psychological um, issue, whether that's performance or sort of personal related. Um, I think that if they know that you've been in a sort of similar position, it's almost like they don't have to kind of start at the beginning and explain too much about how they're feeling because you understand exactly where they're coming from. So it's, it is it is easier to relate to them. Um, and, uh, and I think you kind of, you generate a little bit of respect because you've kind of been there and and done it and overcome it so it it does make things a little bit easier in that respect Mm -hmm. absolutely so it's so funny uh when i met her at the female athlete conference Mm -hmm. and during your presentation i remember i was texting kara don't worry it was about your presentation (laughs) and i was like oh kara i so wish you were here because this is the one i really want to go to kara's specialty is you know (laughs) maternal health and you were talking about the kind of not i don't want to say scandal but controversy around pregnancy and athletes so that i've been following she has been foaming at the mouth to interview you so i'm gonna let her take the the next couple questions <laughs> um and currently right now you've recently taken on a prestigious role within soccer can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so so actually i've worked in a um as a consultant um we obviously call it football that's over what here. i was gonna say oh, football. <laughs> sorry man what a i was pop. waiting to see her say something <laughs> what a bunch of americans we are <laughs> jeez <laughs> football <Yes. laughs> tell us a little bit about that <laughs> so I've worked as a consultant in football for 
for some years now, actually um, focusing on lots of different things, but mostly the development of the workforce. So trying to trying to enhance the um, the effectiveness of coaches and football academy managers and um, and coach developers and things to to help push the the sport along. So it has been rooted a little bit in the past um it's you know it's the most popular sport worldwide i know that americans probably think that's american football and baseball but <laughs> as a <laughs> it's growing over here big time oh, it's yeah huge. yeah mm-hmm. and you know the women's football in the states is absolutely fantastic well, yeah mm-hmm. so, and really well followed um but in, in general the hot the game as a whole is the most most popular sport in the world mm-hmm. and it kind of sometimes gets a little bit complacent rests on that sort of popularity doesn't feel the need to evolve um but over here um in england so we separate our football up into our home countries so in england um our football probably needed a little bit of a a bit of an evolution a bit of a sort of regeneration to make sure it was absolutely on top of its game so the work that i do is is all around how we can help the people that are are helping to evolve the game, the coaches and the support staff and things like that, to make sure that their work is as effective as it can be, not just sort of technically and tactically, but from an interpersonal perspective. So focusing on um, lots of different things, you know, from their own personal effectiveness to making sure that they are compassionate to the people that they're working with, the players, making sure that those players are developed holistically and the importance of that. Because football over here is brutal. It's, you know, highly competitive. There are so many people that, that don't make it in the game. Mm-hmm. Give absolutely everything over to, to wanting to become a, a professional footballer um, that's, you know, operating in either the Premier League or any of the professional leagues that sit under that. Um, and it's a huge sacrifice. Um, and probably probably a little bit more so than, than some of the other sports. Um, so a lot of the other sports, certainly um, in England and the UK, have really sort of jumped onto the importance of making sure that that sport is not, you know, the be all and end all of your life, that you've got lots of other stuff happening, you know, around you and you are more than just an athlete. Football's lagging a little bit behind in, in those stakes. So we're, we're doing this, uh, a, a large piece of work that is sort of um, focused on or focused through developmental initiatives that um, which is the, the team that I work in to, to help just develop people to help develop players a little bit better and more holistically. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. So focusing on the staff indirectly to work with the players rather than in the United States, we seem to always try to think we need to go straight to the players. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the, these people that we work with have so much influence in the game. Um, and you know they're, they're well respected by players and their parents, and you know the, the whole sort of footballing structure. So the really the intervention is at that level because we know they hold that great influence and they can be the catalyst. Well, that's much needed in such an intense sport for mm-hmm. sure. That's great work you're doing. When she described the the culture over there for those athletes seemed to be different than the United States too. Didn't you say that rather than here where we kind of put them on a pedestal? For some of them, they're targeted mm. when they're out in the public, right? Yeah, I mean that that that's that's definitely British culture. So um, you know, we the British love an underdog. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, you know, the, the certainly the media over here are so callous, they can turn on somebody quite quickly. And, you know, they'll, they'll be there and they'll be hounding them and focusing, you know, on any sort of negative aspects. Whereas in America, we tend to find that people celebrate success. And over here, that sort of attracts, you know, that, that makes them a bit of a target. Mm. That the whole sort of dealing with the media, not just from the demands, but also some of the press that you might get as somebody that's successful, is part and parcel of the sort of the psychological preparation that you would, you would do with an athlete. But it is it's a different world over here. It's incredible when you think about it. And I wish I wish we could be more, more American sometimes with the way that you know, we, we celebrate success. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they seem to they seem to sort of put a target on people's back when they're when when they experience success or they're you know otherwise well thought of. So yeah, there's a, a little bit of a cultural complication, I guess, <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I like and that. much needed support. So man, I'm excited. So let's get into <laughs> pregnancy, postpartum athletes. I know you did some research on motherhood and the incombat incompatibility of athletics and sports. So for those that haven't been following it, can you talk a little bit about what's coming out in terms of, well, what's coming out in the media, what um, athletes, women, female athletes have been going through for a while, some of the barriers for athletes who are deciding to start their families within like a competitive athletic career? Yeah, so we so historically the um, the issue of motherhood and an athletic career has been you know, they've been too they've been mutually exclusive. There's you know the the general sort of thought process is that you cannot combine the two, um, and you know athletes report that you know they they just have to postpone motherhood until the end of their athletic career because certainly in in most sports as soon as they take a career break to have a have a child you know they fall behind their competitors, they might lose their placing, their status, that just the, the sheer work that is required to um, recover from the physical manifestation of, of pregnancy and, and giving birth and getting back to a job where your body is the central component okay. to <laughs> your role is so much of a challenge. Um, and people question women's commitments to their sports and their athletic goals if they decide that you know halfway through their career they want to they want to have children so the the two things have very much been mutually exclusive or thought of in in a mutually exclusive way and what we find now i guess the increasing trend has been that um you know there are some athletes who actually want to carry on for as long as they possibly can in their careers or female athletes certainly but at the same time, they're not prepared to risk waiting to conceive until they've finished their athletic career, which might for some sports be, you know, in your sort of late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, you get fertility, sort of so-called fertility experts saying, you know, you basically, if you wait until then, your chances are halved or, you know, and, and the success can't be guaranteed and it's going to be more difficult. So there's so many pressures, I think, on women to in like in any industry to you know to have it all but more so in sport because it is just dog eat dog isn't it you know mm-hmm. as soon as, if even if you're injured you're on on the back foot aren't you with regards to selection and, and things like that so if you think about um you know the, the time that you need to take out of your training and competition for pregnancy um that's just something that that women were not um were, were not willing to sort of sacrifice for, for their career and it was seen as a sacrifice 
But then we've got a couple of really, um, really fantastic and effective role models that have shown that combining motherhood and, a, and an elite athletic career is possible. Um, so those women are absolutely fundamental in in, the, in changing the way that we think about those those two things. The fact that they're not mutually exclusive. The fact that you can, you know, whilst of course you need to have a period of time out of the sport in order to recover physically from. Um, from the sort of physical act of, of giving birth and that it's not guaranteed that you will get back to, to where you, you've been the basis that every woman's experience is an individual one. So if you do decide to, to have a child, you know, it's never guaranteed that you'll be able to get back to, to, to the, the, the level that you were. Um, but there have been some fantastic women that, that have managed that, but it is in spite of a number of barriers and not just those sort of, not just those physical barriers, the, the fact that it's, you know, it is a real uphill challenge to, to get back to uh, an, an elite athletic standard after um, what one of my colleagues had called a massive physiological insult. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you can uh, understand. Um, but also, you know, society's views of women and women in sport and women and, you know, that sort of that reproductive um, labour and the what we call the ethic of care. So if you give birth, then, you know, clearly you're the primary caregiver for your child. And the fact that, you know, you need to get back to your career, which is um, an elite sporting career, which actually does involve you being quite selfish and prioritising yourself and your own, you know, rest and recovery and the time for your training and things like that. Again, those things aren't aren't necessarily compatible. So, if you're prioritising yourself, how can you possibly prioritise your your child? So this is society sort of yeah. looking at saying, "Hang on a second, you know what? Are, you, why are you being so selfish?" But actually, in reality, you know, an an equality of of caregiving and and parenting. Society is at the stage now where it doesn't still doesn't look to that opportunity for, for, for the equality of caregiving and, and automatically places the, the burden on, on the female. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, there are the societal sort of expectations, the physiological difficulties, the no guarantees. And then you throw in there things like pregnancy clauses in sponsorship um, <laughs> and contracts for athlete awards with national governing bodies and, and things like that for professional and Olympic and Paralympic sports. It is utterly horrific to even think that in 2019 those things still exist, that mm-hmm. you can be treated in the same way as if you had posted some kind of doping offence when you get pregnant. So your sponsorship is withdrawn, you know, your money is taken away from you, your athlete award is taken away from you because you're not there for your sport, you're not competing, you're not training, you're not the face of your, your sport anymore. Um, and it is it's positively Victorian, I think, um, you know, just in, in terms of mindsets and in terms of people not really questioning the fact that those things still exist. So I guess in summary, um, I think we should be celebrating the fact that women can compete at the highest level, but at the same time be incredible mothers. Um, but we really need to change our thinking about how we these individuals properly in achieving their athletic and personal goals and we need to make sure that um, policies and procedures and sponsorship 
and all of the things that are wrapped around the athlete match that support. And at the moment, they just don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Agreed. I like that you touch on the different roles. And then you talk about kind of the economic barriers that most, a lot of women are this dual role of the primary caregiver, mm-hmm. but also they're the primary breadwinner. So both of these things the, that they feel conflicted. So I know you're an advocate for increased education support for this population. Where do you see it going or envision this going as that we're, we're talking about it more? What are kind of your hopes for the future for this population? Right. I think we're in a stage at the moment, I think we're in a sort of still in a collective shock mind that this this is actually happening, like I said, in, you know, in 2019, and it has been happening for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it, it's actually not just the sort of economic side of things, but, you know, in, in tennis, Serena Williams was a really interesting case that she lost her ranking. Mm-hmm. You know, stepped away for a short period of time to to have what was an incredibly traumatic birth for right. her. Um, and expected to start from sort of ground zero when she, you know, when she when she came back to, to tennis. And that is ridiculously unfair. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still in this sort of collective shock that these practices and these, you know, expectations are, are there on what is in without a doubt a very sort of patriarchal sporting system. Mm-hmm. So um, and I, I think now it, it's because everybody not everybody but most people are outraged that that this happens i think it's the time is ripe to actually start to campaign to do something about it i know that some of the press coverage and and things like that has um helped to generate this sort of collective shock but that needs now to translate into action mm-hmm. so um so i think that um the more that we talk about it and the more pressure that we put on um brands and governing bodies and you know, sports, um, actually proactively, you know, review contracts and, and arrangements and, and actually do something about this. So I, I think we're in a, a in a, a time that is, is ripe for change. So I think we just need to continue to, to speak out about it to make sure that the momentum is there to to get people behind this this movement to say that this is not acceptable, it should not be tolerated by any woman, regardless of their their level in sport. And that, you know, we, we need to kind of hit the reset button and try to try to think about the, the fact that we should not be penalizing these these women for wanting to find a, a, a family with, with an elite athletic career. Mm-hmm. And it was humbling too, because in your presentation, you kind of talked about the trickle effect, like where are the resources? And I think specifically nutrition on how to get them back to training after pregnancy mm-hmm. if they're breastfeeding i was like i usually yeah, think i'm pretty yeah. on top of my game and i'm like i don't know as it was like oh yeah i hadn't even thought about that because most of the time we think pregnancy they take a break um yeah. and i loved your case studies too where you talked about some of the athletes that went back almost for the sole purpose of being able to say they retired because they wanted to retire. They didn't retire just because they wanted to start their family. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, the, the point that you pick up on there, Becca, is, is, is absolutely right. And, you know, there is, I know that there is a growing amount of research and work going into helping women understand, firstly, what training they're capable of when they're pregnant. So, you know, this, this whole thing about um, over here in the, in, in the UK, there was um, a woman that posted um, herself doing deadlifts with a barbell mm-hmm. with a, with a 
while she was visibly pregnant and the public backlash was unbelievable oh yeah we saw that in the u.s that picture in the u.s too yeah (laughs) and and actually you know when when you think about it if you are somebody that lifts regularly the fact that you're pregnant shouldn't mean that you continue to lift if it's Mm -hmm. beyond if if it's within your capability then the fact that you're pregnant is not going to not going to change anything so I think, again, we need to move away from this collective mindset that pregnancy should equate to rest and, and relaxation. Actually, you know, to, to be able to be physically active during pregnancy is a key benefit to the mother mm-hmm. and the baby. Mm-hmm. And as an athlete, you know, you can't just stop training because you're pregnant. But what we don't necessarily know in detail is, you know, to what degree are you able to push yourself in training when you are pregnant and how does that change as you move through the trimesters and how do we make sure that the female athletes are monitored properly so that they are benefiting from training but at the same time not you know not doing anything that's going to be detrimental to them um, or their baby so more i know that more work is happening and more research and more guidance is being published but and that that's a really important introduction i think mm-hmm. but i think part, part and parcel of this whole issue is education and making sure that when somebody posts a picture of them doing exercise when they're pregnant, that people celebrate that. Right. Promote it rather than find it abhorrent and like it's some kind of, you know, example of child abuse. <laughs> um, so so I, I think I think that's, you know, that, that at the sort of the exercise pregnancy interaction is really important. And then postpartum, how do we support women in general, but also really athletes to understand you know, when do they come back? At what stage? You know, how how do they know that they're ready to come back? When should they, uh, you know, should they avoid up until what point? You know, there's lots of sort of question marks um, over that. And again, we know it's very individual that some women like um, will have to take an extended period of time out and others like um, people that I've experienced in, in my work, you know, have got back to their sport within, you know, a week, 10 days of, of giving birth. But again, you know, let's let's talk about this. Let's let's provide those role models out there. Let's show women that it's it's absolutely right and natural to, you know, to to, to get back to to being active and and doing you know what what you want to do, um, and not be hindered or by public expectation that you know just you've got a newborn that you should be there with them 100% of the time, 24 hours a day, night and day. You know, mm-hmm. all of this. Um, and then the nutritional guidelines, which people like yourself, Becca, will you know be absolutely you know, fundamental to the success of that, because you know there, there's all of those concerns, especially as a as an athlete. Um, you know, people are sort of shock the shock pregnant women into thinking that they shouldn't be eating too much, and I know that sometimes that that results in people eating not not eating enough. Right. Um, so you know, how do we make sure that they get the right um, advice? Um, so they're not eating for two, but they are eating sufficient, you know, to, to sustain a, a trading load and, and their pregnancy. And then, you know, what, what happens after they give birth? It's lot, so many questions, right. so, so many questions. But I know that there's a lot of good work going on to try to plug these gaps in, in our knowledge. But we just need to continue to, to talk about it to, to get the message out there um, and uh, hopefully change change the way that we think about the exercise pregnancy interaction and um and then, and then getting getting back to sport after giving birth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole 
a whole podcast on like how society views motherhood. So mm. thank you for your work. I we, knew that'd get you on your I soapbox. I know, I am on my soapbox. <laughs> I'm trying to contain myself here. Um, but we're looking forward to following even more of your research and your work on this. So thank you for being an advocate um, for this population. I want to talk a little bit further about some of the work you're still doing. So you help create WISE. Tell us what that stands for. Yeah, so women in Women's Sport and Exercise Academic Network. So um, a few years ago when I worked at the University of Worcester, we, um, my colleagues and I had a bit of a remit to try to influence, I guess, the growth of women in sports, not just at a sort of local level, but a, you know, a little bit sort of further reaching. And some of the work that I was doing um, kind of recognised that there's lots of pockets of excellence that goes on in research into women in sport but people were sort of working in silos were sort of doing stuff and not really interacting with the wider sort of research community um, and we identified a huge need to basically sort of take control of the narrative of women in sport certainly in um, I mean in acknowledgement of the fact that a lot of the research that we use in our practice as practitioners in sport are based on a male sample mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that extends from, you know, training guidelines, training loads, training frequencies, training type, nutrition, you know, absolute whitewash of anything to do with, um, you know, the impact of menstruation on training, not just from a physical, but a psychological perspective, the whole pregnancy thing. I mean, just absolutely everything was was is still male dominated so what i decided to do is say okay let, let me try and find the people that are doing some fantastic work in their pockets um that, that's focusing on women in sport and trying to sort of redress the balance and, and move things forward and let's connect all of us for greater gain so let's connect let's connect us for things like collaboration opportunities for promoting the work that we do as a, as a collective to um, being the go-to people for comment when you know news items um, come up because it, it's kind of like it was a bit of like a, a sort of underground movement mm-hmm. previously um, and maybe it's just increasing the visibility and the, of, of the fantastic work that's that's going on and then you see that showcased at the fantastic female conference that we went to back in um in june mm-hmm. and we have our own little version over here in in the uk uh, so there's you know there, there's some real momentum which we always road trip but yeah. it have to be <laughs> plane trip oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> always welcome out by the way uh, so, so the women in sport academic network was really to sort of join forces to make sure that we're, we're promoting and getting the message out more effectively to make uh, to make sure that um you know, we, we know who the sort of key researchers are in certain areas and then we can put people together to, to keep moving the research um, forward on women in sport. So and I'm not saying that this is associated with the network, but there has been a huge, um, a, a huge sort of momentum that is gathering around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are noticing that sort of internationally now. Um, and it's, it's just fantastic to be a part of it, really. And you compiled them all in your book, The Exercising Female. So it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So many, many of the network members have contributed to the Exercising Female book that my colleague Jackie and I um, edited and, and published last year. And that was um, just an accumulation of, it was sort of looking at the exercising female, somebody from the sort of recreational end of the exercise continuum all the way through to, to the elite end and looking at them and their sort of uh, their lifespan and the, the issues that they might need to sort of, they might encounter and need advice on throughout the lifespan from adolescence all the way through to sort of menopause. Mm. Um, and all of the bits in between. So, and that, that was a fantastic, project to be involved in actually so many talented individuals with some fantastic impactful research outputs that contributed to the book um so yeah it was it was it was a really satisfying project to, to what a great resource we'll definitely uh add that <laughs> to uh make sure people know how to get that definitely and look into that well, Claire Marie, tell us how, with all these shuttling around, you live out the fit philosophy, balancing performance, health, intellect, and time for self. And then, if I remember right, you have a special pup, Malcolm. Hmm. <laughs> My black Labrador, Malcolm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it keeps me keeps me on the um, on the track for things like um, balancing time. Well, actually, I don't know whether it's time for myself or time for him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's um, he's like a he's a, like a little athlete dog. So he's um, he's very very active. He um, you know it, it doesn't matter what the weather's like. He's he's got to go out and he gets about three hours of exercise a day. So um, but it actually um, having having a pet like that is absolutely fantastic because it's um, it's a great opportunity. You always have to go out. You always have to exercise him. There's there's no excuses. He won't let you come up with it. <laughs> Um, but also, you know, it's it's time. That time is is really sort of meditative and reflective, and it sort of you know helps you sort of get a bit of a break from from the work and make sure you're doing something healthy and active outdoors. Um, so I would def- definitely recommend getting a dog to anybody that's struggling with or two. Yeah, we've we've got a, a bunch in here just between the two of us, I think. <laughs> um so yeah so he's uh he's a great intervention um and a fantastic pet um and then just balancing performance um health not sure about intellect but (laughs) i think i think you have that i think you do that for your job (laughs) so yeah just just an acknowledgement you know that in order to be the best that you can be you absolutely need to look after yourself um and I think that there's there's lots of lessons I take from my, my time as, as an athlete. So making sure that, um, you know, nutritionally, that things are on, on track there and are balanced and, you know, moderated and, and things like that. So and um, always being active. So my life has, has been sort of wrapped around physical activity and, and exercise in, in various forms. It's just so integrated into my life. It's not... It's not anything I could sort of ever sort of foresee being being without. Um, and I'm not going to not going to lie. It is a real struggle to make sure that all of those things are balanced, especially mm-hmm. when you've got a really, really busy job. But you've just got to be you just got to be tuned into yourself and know, you know, when you when you need to take a break and, and make sure you understand the importance of proactive, you know, activities and making time for yourself and, and things like that. So definitely. Um, yeah, so I'm stri- striving to be the best I can be, but acknowledge- <laughs> um, it needs to be about those things. You're pretty darn great, so doing well. 
Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate taking the time and talking about something that Becca and I um, really love to talk mm-hmm. about, motherhood and sports. So, um, again, thanks for being on your busy day. Oh, thank you so much. I feel very honored to be invited on your fantastic Aww. podcast. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you soon, okay? You will. Sending greetings from the UK. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com, to find out when the release date is set and when it'll be on Amazon. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, Queens.